That was all the best, and this is not what you think. I'm Sasha Rosen, and we're coming to you today from the Bankstown Arts Centre. What would it be like if you were in prison? I mean, it'd be hard, I mean, that's the point, but would it just stop with you? Prison can really affect the lives of people around you. It's a, a family experience, according to Glasgow-based professor Nancy Lux. It's rough on families, and that can get harder if you're from a non-Anglo background. Being Indigenous in the prison system is a big thing, and that, that does get talked about. What gets a little less airtime is what it's like to have a family member in prison and to be Muslim. Specifically, what's it like to be the family of a Muslim offender? Social worker and community activist Ula Elhassan works on a project that has been compiling the stories of families of people in the correctional system and putting together some resources for them to use as well. She's going to tell us what that's like. And a warning, while this half hour won't be full of rude words, we will be talking about some pretty heavy stuff for the next 30 minutes or so. Ula, thanks for coming in. Thank you. You had a story you wanted to start us with. Yes, would you like me to read it? Yeah, that would be great. My little brother, I remember walking down our driveway, returning from my shift at Big W, feeling tired and exhausted. As I approached the front door, I could hear my mother sobbing while my father shouting at her. I forbid you from visiting him. Do you understand? Do you? He deserves to be there. Let him learn his lesson. With my mother's face down in her hands, I watched my father jump in his car and race out of our driveway. I hugged my mother and asked, what's wrong? Unprepared for what she was about to reveal, the news of my brother going to jail was a big blow to contend with for a 16-year-old girl. The police have taken him away, she said. My brother was a few months shy of his 15th birthday. My thoughts were, not jail, he's still a baby. He was my little brother. My little brother was sentenced to two and a half years in jail. This broke my mother's heart and I know it broke my father's too, even though he tried not to show it. Our immediate friends and extended relatives all had their two cents worth of advice to give my parents as to why my brother lost his way. The judgments and gossiping behind my family's back began. I remember feeling so ashamed, yet I had not done anything wrong. Many loved to blame my parents' style of parenting, and others just blamed my brother. He's a naughty boy, a disobedient son, they would say. But what did people think would happen to a little boy whose father had an unmanaged illness and who during his many episodes would beat up that little boy excessively, sometimes using a bat? What did people think was going to come of a little boy whose father at age 12 made him sleep outside in the winter's night without a blanket or a pillow because he broke the neighbour's window with a tennis ball while playing outside? What did people think would become of a little boy who grew up watching his mother be beaten, shoved, kicked and taunted by his own father? What did people think would become of a little boy who was kicked out of school at the age of 14 years old because he got into a fight on school ground, which resulted in an expulsion and so no other school would take him, resulting in him roaming the streets during the day with nothing to do? I would love to tell you that this was a Hollywood movie and that it has a happy ending with him rising above the hardships and taking the right path in life, but unfortunately this is not a movie and it doesn't have a happy ending. I don't blame my parents for my brother's wayward path. They really did the best they could with the cards that life played them. I blame the school system. I blame our society, the lack of resources young men in my hood needed when they were growing up. These forgotten men from these forgotten communities were many. I also blame my own community who forgot about the future generation of men that were going to be their predecessors. Thanks. And that, that's, that's not your story? No, you? that's somebody that actually wrote it in for a publication that I'm working on, and she submitted that in to us a few months ago. And, and the publication that you're working on is specifically about the families of, of people who are in prison, Muslim families in particular? Yes, absolutely. Why did you think that that was an important area to put together something? Okay. 
Um, I think it was mainly born out of my work with young people in general and I could see the um, impact it was having in my job where I could see young families that I was working with who had a son inside jail or a brother who was incarcerated and I was having to work with these families for different issues as a counsellor in a different capacity and I was just surprised at the impact it would have on the mothers and the, the women within the family who really bore the brunt of of the incarceration. There was a lot of shame and these women tend to develop a lot of depression. Uh, women were feeling isolated, like they couldn't talk to anybody within their community. And that really made me think about how these women in particular were really the forgotten victims of crime. And I wanted to give them an opportunity to talk about their stories, to, to shed light on the issues and basically raise awareness of what's actually happening for them. There's a lot to talk about on that subject, about what happens to, to families, the forgotten victims, as they're often called, like you were saying. And we'll, we'll come back and we'll be talking about more of that in just a sec. We're going to go to a song first, and this is Rid You by Moon Holiday.
That was Ridgie by Moon Holiday, and we're talking to Ula El Hassan, who's a community activist and social worker, and she's telling us what it's like to have a family member who's who's taken to prison, especially if you're from a Muslim family. And it often starts kind of suddenly, doesn't it? The incarceration or leading up to the incarceration? Yeah, the, 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 the disruption of the family life sure. is, is pretty sudden, as oh, I understand it. Absolutely. Um, the minute they get that phone call, and that's how they usually are informed about their family member's incarceration, um, informing them that your husband or your brother or your son um, is in custody, is when the shock really hits home for a lot of these families and that realisation of what do we do next, where do I go, who do I speak to is a huge shock to the system because a lot of families have may not necessarily have had any contact with um, you know, the police or even the legal system and they really don't know what to do next and, and that can be a very frightening place for a lot of people who just don't know what support services are out there, where do they go, how do they even find out which jail their family member's been put into. Things that we might think are really basic stuff, but believe it or not, this information is not readily available and they have to start that maze, as a lot of families have described it, of trying to work through it and figure out what to do next. Do they usually find that they can work through it or is it something that stumps them? Yeah, it's it's a process and I think for a lot of families, um, one member in particular will step up and it's usually the women in the family, which I think is really amazing and just a reflection of how women are the backbones within our community in all communities really um, they will step up so it might be the older sister or the, the mother and they just have to really navigate through the system on their own with whatever information they can get sometimes it's stuff that they pick up along the way sometimes it's information they get a year later and they go oh, this would have helped me so much had I known this a year ago um, but yeah it's a process it's not something they can understand immediately and then while they're going through the, this difficult bureaucratic process and working all of that out, it's kind of, uh, people talk about it as a kind of grief. Yes, You're absolutely. grieving for the family member and going through that emotional absolutely. process as well. There's a loss there, regardless. It may not be death, but for a lot of families, this you know, member that was once in their home who they just saw maybe hours earlier is not coming back. Sometimes it's months, sometimes it's weeks, and some of them it's the realisation that it actually could be years, and that's a huge thing to take in and um, it's definitely part of you know they will go through a grieving process similar to that of those who've actually lost somebody and then after the grief there's other things that families have to deal with it like both the adults and the children or all sorts of other side effects what, what, what other sorts of things happen to the family um, there's stuff that even internally maybe there's sometimes there's anger some of the family members may be really angry about the with the person that actually offended because they're upset that they've brought shame on their family or why did you have to commit that crime there isn't really this understanding of what actually leads them to uh, get involved with criminal activity so different people within the family unit will experience different things at different points in their in their trials I guess and in their struggle but within that family unit there is particular things that they're going through and then outside of that especially in um, Muslim communities because they are very collective and it's a small community it's not a large community news travels pretty quickly so uh, you know news gets out that the that family's son is now jail in jail or that lady down the road her son is her husband has been locked up and and once that gets into the community there's a lot of shame and people love to judge although it's not part of the islamic faith and generally people are not meant to judge each other we are individuals separate from one another in an ideal world that would be great but it doesn't happen and people are judged they're seen as oh you must have you know, aided that person in their criminal activity or, um, oh, they were a drug dealer, oh, you must have benefited from that drug money somehow. And a lot of the times, 
I would say in all communities generally, not just the Muslim community, the families are really have no clue what's actually going on with their family member and it's a surprise a lot of the time when they actually do get incarcerated and they realise, oh, actually, I didn't know, whether it be by choice or whether they just wanted to turn a blind eye. Either way, a lot of, in most circumstances, they have no clue as to what's going on. Is, is it especially harder being Muslim? What sort of things affect you when you're yeah. Muslim and this is happening? Like I said, I guess the shame of you should have known better and you've got the faith, why didn't you speak up? Or if you knew that your son was actually getting in trouble, why didn't you intervene? And, and it generally it falls on the mother because she's the one that's really in the home most of the time. And I think that's a really um, unfair place for, for women to be and they should not have to carry this burden on their own. Um, although they are generally the sole carers and they have a traditional role of caring, it's a, it's a big responsibility for anybody to take responsibility for somebody else's actions. Well, especially, I suppose, if you hadn't done, felt like you'd done anything no, yourself. Exactly. We might come back in a sec to talk about more of the details of that. We're just going to go and have a listen to Face to Face by Silk Roads. That was Face to Face by Silk Roads. We're talking to Ula El Hassan, who's a social worker and a community activist, and she's talking to us today about something she thinks should have more airtime, which is the families of Muslim offenders. And one of the, the things you've got to understand about a Muslim 
family, about Muslim culture, is the importance of the mother, no? Yes, absolutely. The mother plays such a pivotal role in the family unit and anyone that brings shame on her um, is looked down upon and frowned upon within our faith because she's got such an esteemed role. And and I've met, heard many young men, once I work with them, they'll say to me, oh, if I knew that my mum had to be dragged a few hours to come visit me, I swear I would not have done that crime or I wouldn't have gotten into that you know, car or wouldn't have gone down that path. And although in practice we know that there's so much other things that influence people to commit a crime, I think it's still beautiful that these young men do think about their mothers, even if it is an afterthought. The role that they brought, the shame they brought on her is really um, is something at the forefront and they really do stress about that. And, and a lot of the times in all cultures, actually it's not just specific to, um, you know, Arabic speaking and slash Muslim faith, but I find that the mother gets the first letter inside. And I think that's really beautiful, but sad at the same time, that they love somebody so much that they're the first person they want to write to. But at the same time, they've brought so much shame and hardship and no mother wants to be away from her son or not be able to touch them or hug them or embrace them whenever she wants. And so it's almost like this really difficult world, two worlds challenging each other. What would you say in a letter like that? Um, a lot of the women that have written to us for the purpose of the publication have actually read us their letters and a lot of the times it's a, a sorry just apologizing for dragging them through the system I'm sorry you had to go to court I'm sorry I brought shame on you um, I'm sorry that I, I did what I did and I didn't turn out the way that you had wanted me to so um, although that's very beautiful and touching it's quite sad because it really is an afterthought and and I hope that this project could actually serve as maybe even a crime prevention tool for a lot of young men who before they even embark on this lifestyle even get caught up in the system that maybe this bit of a wake-up call of things to come if you do go down the path of any criminal activity and let's look at the shame it could actually bring and really um, delving into it deeply. And I guess obviously we, we don't want to minimise the impact on, on the victims of the original crime, but one of the things we're talking about is that there are more victims here and that the family, the, the members, the mother in particular, can be one of the victims. Absolutely. And it's, it sounds like, I mean, I don't know what you do once you got to that point, either as, as the family or as the offender, like where, where do you go from there? And it sounds like there are lots of gaps in, in the, the, the services that could help you work out what to do. And also um, there are gaps in, in some of the prevention. Yes, well. absolutely. The Red Cross actually did some research a few years ago and actually found that families of offenders are one of the least funded areas, and not just Muslim families, just all families in general from all walks of life, all cultures. It's just one of, one of those areas that nobody really wants to go into because it's, oh, they've done their crime, they need to do the time, and who cares about the family? Like, we're, they're not the ones serving the time. So and I read a Green MP who said there were no votes in prisons, and that that's one of the problems. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's, yeah, that's a really good, uh, maybe if they brought voting back, people could influence the type of programs that they could get access to but if families are this the unit that services actually rely on so research has actually told us that the more supported a person is on the inside with their family on the outside and the hope that they can actually go back to somebody once they are released is very important for their very reintegration back into the community their rehabilitation so if we know that this family unit is so important in stopping reoffending then I don't understand why when there isn't enough support for them and more services geared towards those family units, which if you take them away, can you imagine the impact it would have on the housing system, the welfare system? Um, and these families are really picking up a lot of the, the stepping in when other services should possibly 
be doing so. And presumably not flourishing where they would otherwise flourish, and I bet we're all suffering for that. Yeah, absolutely. It well, sounds like there are a lot of gaps, and we might talk to, about them in just a sec. We're yes. going to go to another song, and this is Coin Toss by La Da Da. That was Coin Toss by Aladadar, and you're on FBI 94.5. I'm Zasha Rosen, I'm talking to Ul El Hassan. And before the break, we were talking about how important it is to support families, and, and how it seems strange that that's not done more often, or in some cases, I, I think, at all. And one of the, the reasons we should be doing that is it's actually a lot cheaper. How much cheaper mm. could it be? Well, research tells us that it's over $200,000 to keep a young person, it costs taxpayers, sorry, over $200,000 to keep a young person inside a jail per year. So that's including the workers, the facilities, any services they access. Can you imagine if that money actually went towards the communities that these young men came from and supported them by building structures that they need, like community services, community centres, opportunities for them to 
you know, engaging programs rather than roam the streets. And it sounds like that $200,000 would be a good argument for, for finding votes in prisons. And it also sounds like it reflects a lot of gaps in services, both before and after prison for offenders and for their families. What, what sort of gaps are there? Uh, families are needing a lot more services in terms of counselling. A lot of family cells, I just really don't know where to go once my family member is incarcerated. I'm struggling with the news. A lot of them express um, depression, symptoms of depression, um, isolation, being withdrawn. I think they would like to connect with other families who've actually got a family member in jail so that they can know that they're not going through this alone. Uh, we need programs in terms of rehabilitation. If money could go towards the services before they come out, so getting them prepared for coming out, letting them know what it's like to transition back into the community, doing the weekend visits, the outings, building their skills up on the inside so that they, they're coming out with some type of skill. I had a young man once who came out of jail, he had been in there for about a year and a half, and he was not coping. He just had not transitioned. He went in as a young teenager and then came out as an actual adult so although physically he was clearly a young adult I think developmentally he had not reached those milestones and he was quite withdrawn did not know what was going Facebook had just been created social media was really alive and this guy did not know how to even use a computer he didn't know how to use an ATM machine before he was incarcerated he'd never held a simple thing as a an ATM card and all of a sudden he's got to come out he's got to fill the form sign back up go back and apply for income uh, from government services and these are things we would never have expected of a 15 year old to say to do on their own but we now expect that of him because he's 18 or 19 but he may not be ready to do that so I think it's these little supportive structures that, that need to be in place so that young men feel that they can almost get walked through the outside world once they are released even if it is temporarily short term six months even it sounds like there's a, there aren't too many of those sorts of programs for offenders and not too many for families either it Absolutely. sounds like yeah. families are really stretched from all cultures and faiths but today we're talking about the muslim community in general but yeah they, they don't a lot of the women we've spoken to for the purpose of this publication have said either they've never ever tapped into a program in all the years that their sons or husbands or brothers were incarcerated. And if they had tapped into one, it wasn't necessarily culturally um, specific or they couldn't speak the language with the therapist or they didn't understand the shame factor that it had on them or they weren't specifically geared for families with incarcerated um, members in jail. They were just generalist services. And one of the, the things that's also being done or that you're doing is putting together a book which is collecting some of these experiences and also collecting some resources for families in this yes. sort of position. Do you want to tell us a little about Locked Out? Locked Out is made up of uh, women's stories. It's basically giving women from the community the platform to share their stories. We know that storytelling is very powerful and we know that storytelling can actually not only heal people that are going through the trauma but help others to navigate through um, the crisis that they're in just being able to pick something up and go oh I can actually relate to what she's saying I, I remember that feeling she she's speaking to me um, can have a really profound effect on individuals and families in general um, and we want women to be able to pick up this resource and just have basic information at what to do when your family members taken away and incarcerated where to go and we feel that if women are more equipped, this actually empowers them. And hopefully if we have empowered women, then they can support the offenders and inmates upon their return back home. And this is a pretty low-budget project that you've been putting together with a lot of love and not, not too many resources, but a bit of help from some of your partners, which is one of the reasons we're at the Bankstown Arts Centre today. They're lending us a room. Um, 
And that launches on March 9, doesn't it? Yes, we're launching the publication uh, March 9 here at the Bankstown Arts Centre. And you're right to say that it is a low-budget program. We have zero funding, really. And uh, I've joined forces with two great organisations, Bankstown Youth Development Service and Mission of Hope. And we've basically tried to get this project off the ground with as little resources as we can so that we can reach as many women and families as possible. Well, El Hassan, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks to Ulla for coming in to talk to us today. Ulla was suggested by Omaima Sukri. Check out Locked Out's Facebook page. There's a link to it on our website. Thanks also to Annie Hamilton, who designed our fantastic logo. You can see on our show page and on our podcast. You can listen to this show again at ondemand.fbiradio.com, but the podcast can go straight to your phone and stay there if you want it to. Just go to fbiradio.com, click on air, then programs and playlists, choose not what you think, and our podcast details are down the bottom there. The podcast has a little extra material we couldn't fit in this broadcast version. Now What You Think is produced by Laura Briley. The executive producer is Claire Holland, and I'm Zasha Rosen. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new idea for our final episode. Next up on FBI, lunch. I'm Laura Briley, producer for Know What You Think. This is a little bit extra that we recorded, but we couldn't fit on air. I also think like when young men are coming out, which is what we were speaking about, I think, earlier, was that the programs that are created do need to tap into what works for those young people from those particular young communities you know and if if culture is a huge thing in that community then why are our programs not geared and tailored around culture and if faith is a big thing in those communities why don't we tailor the programs around faith why is it that we we assume i think especially here in the west that there must be one way of dealing with um or creating programs and we have this one fits one system fits everybody sort of ideal that oh it's worked really great with this particular community okay let's just adopt it and do it there and I actually don't think that's you know the most effective way of addressing crime prevention or even early intervention there's this sense of anglo as being neutral and if, if that was ever true it, it's just not a useful idea anymore and yeah the oh, concept of anglo is almost like it's a, it's a it cripples us mm. Like, who is Anglo anymore? Mm, yeah, exactly. Just, I agree. A bunch of mi- Mixed, like, yeah. Mix. Yeah. Just... That's right. But I guess one of the traits of Anglo these days is, is that we just take for granted mm. that, that you don't have you know, an ethnicity, a culture, whereas you do. Mm. It's just it, it's seen as mainstream, so mm. it doesn't really seem to stand out mm. to you. Well, to some people, I guess. I think there's this almost taboo of talking about cultures and faith also. People really trying to be politically correct because, oh, we don't, we don't want to use faith because then we're, now, we're making people radical. And But I really think if it's done in a positive way, it can be so much more effective. In New Zealand, for example, the, um, I was reading while back, a while back, there was a program that worked with young men before they actually get incarcerated. So these guys are at risk of incarceration. But central to the program is actually doing the, is it the kumata? Oh yeah, yeah. the hacker, the hacker, yeah, and really just teaching young men to deal with rage, but through culture and through their ancestors and how do you actually, you know, tap into your ancestors? And I thought that was so beautiful, and it works for them. Like it's seen as a very effective um, service, but I guess people just think, oh well, how can that work? That's just an alternative way of addressing I stuff. Because I, I lived in America for a while, and my friend was dating a Native American, yeah, and he had. He had rage issues and issues of society yeah. because of so much has happened. But he, what he did was he focused all his energy on um, learning all the languages and then yep. teaching the younger kids and also playing traditional Native American mm. sports and just kind of the culture. And he just yep. 
channels so much energy into that yeah. that it helped them deal with there all these issues. Can you imagine if we did that here with the communities and t- let them tell us what they think would really work and not us dictate what we think works?